Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 1st of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Our Ladies Hospital in Navam will not be downgraded anytime soon. That's a commitment to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, made in a statement to this programme. That commitment falls short of reassuring people that a move to close the emergency department and the hospital's ICU will not happen. In July, the board of the HSE decided to do exactly that. The Minister's intervention is seen as just a temporary delay in a downgrade first recommended some eight years ago. On Saturday crowds in huge numbers came out onto the streets of Navan and made their feelings known. For too long the people of Meath have had their heads down. We have lifted our arms and our voices today and we have told the HSE and the government where to go when it comes to our hospital. But the government has said it has told the HSE to pause its plans. Because of the mobilisation of the people of Meath, they have given a stay of execution. But a stay of execution is not near good enough. We demand that our HSE remains fully open. In twos, Peter Tobin speaking on Saturday. The chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign says he has three questions he wants all local politicians to answer now. Will they and their party commit to stop the closure of Navin A&E and ICU? Will they and their party commit to the proper investment and resourcing of our A&E to make it safe and strong? And finally, and most importantly, will they and their party commit themselves to the deleting of all references to the downgrading of Navin Hospital, our A&E and ICU from all HSC and government policy documents. Now let's go back to the newsroom because Marco O'Driscoll spent uh, the day in Navin Forest on Saturday to get a, a sense of how people feel. Uh, maybe we can start by talking about that, Mark, uh, about uh, the mood on Saturday because obviously a lot of people came out. But would you describe that mood as a, a mood of determination? Good morning, Michael. Absolutely, yes. You can hear from the clips there and Pater Tobin's speech. There was a real sense on Saturday afternoon of people power and that the people of Navin and indeed Meath and beyond were not going to take any downgrading of the county's only public hospital sitting down or quietly 
Um, Gardaí estimated there was between seven and 10,000 people there on Saturday. It was a mm. nice afternoon. So It was. It was a very wet weekend, really. And uh, I think the organisers were blessed by the weather to get such a, a good turnout. And uh, I think also that uh, Gardaí uh, tend uh, to estimate uh, on the lower end of possible numbers because they, they look at groups and think, well, maybe those people are at the rally and maybe those people aren't, that they're actually going into a shop or something like that. So an estimate of seven to 10,000 people is a very big attendance and I'm sure the organisers must have been delighted with that. There were lots of groups who came along on Saturday as well, Mark. Yeah, I mean, we had tractors, there was vintage cars, musicians, there was a hospital bed on the back of a trailer with our friend Deirdre from Kells was posed as a patient with a sign reading, in case of an emergency, ring your local vet. So there was lots of, you know, colour mm. there. There was lots of noise. People were, were standing up. They wanted to make themselves seen and definitely heard on Saturday afternoon. All right, OK. Well, a, a determined crowd, but obviously a good-humoured crowd, uh, based on what you're saying there, Mark. Uh, and what did people feel uh, about what might be happening in the hospital? Well, as you said there, Michael, it was hard to to estimate the size of the crowd because we gathered first uh, along the Trim Road near the Enterprise Centre there by Beaufort College. And I began, I suppose, one of the first people who was gathered there, I began by speaking to her and asked her what Navin Hospital and indeed the A&D service meant to her. A few years ago, I had a stroke. Only for the quick thinking in the hospital, I'd be now in a wheelchair. So first-hand experience of... First-hand care is unbelievable. As you say, I'm 72. Most of my neighbours are in the same position. We, we can't, we have no transport. Imagine if I had a heart attack or a stroke or anything, this virus. I'd have to go to Drogheda. I wouldn't survive. I'm sorry, I wouldn't survive getting to Drogheda. God, strong feelings there and uh, I think that probably puts it into perspective uh, to a large degree, not just uh, that a, a relatively young person can have uh, such uh, a serious problem so suddenly uh, as a stroke, but that if you don't have your own transport, it's difficult to get very far uh, and that's why that lady was speaking to you there, Mark, uh, wants uh, the hospital to remain as it is in the town. Was that the mood, generally speaking? Pretty much, Michael, there was a real sense of frustration time and time again from speaking to people on Saturday. You could hear the same message ringing through that the future of the A&E at Our Lady's Hospital really is an issue of life and death. It's a necessary facility for the area. We need it. Uh, Navin needs it. Um, I, I'm lucky enough to work up the road in Taramines and while there's a great safety ethos there, accidents do happen and it's great to have a facility like that on your doorstep when someone gets hurt or someone is sick. Um, on a personal level, my eldest girl wouldn't be alive only for Navin Hospital. We rang one time, she turned blue at home and when we arrived we were met with two doctors and three nurses and they got her back for she's seven years old and there isn't a bother on her and only for Navin Hospital she might not be here. For the size of the uh, Navin town, we should definitely be upgrading the services in Navin. Um, there's a lot of people around here that have been in and out of Navin Hospital and family wouldn't have managed to get them maybe to Dublin or to Drogheda in time. Um, also, I think it's saving jobs for people that work up there. I think even uh, the local club, Navin and Matinee, if kids that get injured with hands and stuff, they can, and once they're over 16, they can head up to A&E over there. They're not clogging up Drogheda where it's under pressure with Dundalk and surrounding areas. First of all, Navin is the main hub of County Mead, really, you know, and it's one of the biggest towns and growing towns in County Mead. 
There's a lot of people from a young age to an older age, and people have issues all the time. They're sick or they got injured or they've got some kind of disability. So, of course, we need the hospital and we need the accident and emergency. But if we do keep it, we need to make it more advanced as well for the younger generation or who's coming in or for the older generation who are living on their own. They don't have any access and it's, they should have more access to the emergency department than anyone else. So I believe Navin Hospital should actually wake up a little bit or, or the political party should wake up a little bit and do something about the accident and emergency and for Navin Hospital as well. The local hospital is so important to Navin and, and to me in general. Like It's a big county, big population and it's just not good enough to try, try and downgrade the hospital which I believe will ultimately lead to more services being taken um, as well as the ICU and A&E. So we just can't let it happen and we won't let it happen. I marched here in 2013 and with these kids in a buggy and here I am back again 2021 marching with them again it's shocking. We're all local uh, to Navin um, so obviously Navin Hospital is, is a great uh, facility for us you know if anything ever goes wrong we know it's there just a quick trip into the into the into the hospital and you know you'll get to, uh, looked after otherwise you're up to Dublin or Drada and um, you know waiting times and stuff you never know when you're going to get seen to so like I said it's a, a great facility. A very clear message uh, from uh, those people to the Minister, Mark, clearly saying, hands off our hospital, you not to uh, close the emergency department and to the ICU, which is uh, the fear at the moment. But I suppose you could forgive people if they're scratching their heads uh, this morning because uh, the Minister has said that that's not going to happen, at least not any time soon. Uh, what did people make of uh, that statement from Stephen Donnelly? That was the next question I put to those in attendance on Saturday, Michael. However, most felt the government was just kicking the can down the road. I started by asking this man if he trusted Stephen Donnelly's recent remarks. No, definitely not. And I, it, it doesn't need to be closed. It needs investment. It needs it needs more. It serves a huge area, huge population. And um, as far as I'm concerned, Navin Hospital is going nowhere, whether we have to march today or again or... It's, it's going nowhere. There's going to be a lot of noise made here today and it's um, it's going nowhere. I think it's a disgrace. We've been, we've been rallying for many years now. They're saying the same thing and they're just cutting services quietly behind the scenes. We need to be upgrading the hospital, not you know taking away the services at this stage. And people are fed up and I'm hoping there'll be enough people here now. We're all giving out, so I hope there's enough people here today that get behind it and stand and march and let the government know that we're fed up and we want things to be sorted out. And I suppose, look, the HSE or the government might argue by closing a hospital here, they might, ha- you know, could save lives by upgrading facilities elsewhere. What no, would your thought on that? No, be? I don't agree with that at all. I think that the, so I think Drogheda Hospital, if you ever go to Drogheda Hospital, if three children, you're standing around for hours and hours. If, if Navin, Navin took children many years ago, like I don't know how many years they shut it down, but they wouldn't be under the same amount of pressure. And to get to Dublin for people, it's not feasible. A lot of people, you know, call a taxi to get to Navin Hospital in the Navin area. So I actually don't agree with that statement whatsoever, no. They might save lives, yes, but you, you know, you, you, you can save lives as it is as well, and to make it a better place, I think you save uh, a lot more lives um, instead of they, they, they're just going to keep pumping up money. And that's our taxpayers' money that they're pumping in, which is ridiculous as well. So leave what, what is there, leave it as it is, and uh, make it a better place uh, for the people of Navin. Pause is not good enough at this stage. They need to make a firm commitment that Navin Hospital is safe. And actually, I would like to see them come out and say they're actually going to put money into the hospital, more investment to upgrade it, not just pause any any, um, 
uh, changes that they're, they're talking about at the minute. And if they did say, you know, the, the HSE might come out and say the likes of Drogheda and Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, you know, by pooling resources together they could save lives and by shutting Navin they could put the resources in elsewhere. Is that something that you'd agree with or disagree with? No, because it's too far and those hospitals are at breaking point already and, you know, pool resources, sure, like they haven't even tackled the problems those hospitals have to date. So why would I believe that they're going to put more money into them? Um, I just don't believe it. They haven't shown that they're going to do that to date, so why would I believe them now? And I, I firmly believe in local hospitals. And the, as I said, the population of me is quite large. And nobody, nobody thinks it's good enough to travel to Drogheda or Connolly or anywhere else. We need the local hospital. I have family members that have been saved here in Avon Hospital. And if they had to travel further afield, I don't know if they would have been saved. That's just the bottom line. It's always the same with the government. You know, you never, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, obviously, with, with COVID, that's a, a sign of things. You know, you never can predict. But um, hopefully, uh, like I said, our turnout will, will make some influence and they realise, you know, the impact of, of closing the hospital would have on the community. Well, a, a lot of concern there from uh, those people, Mark, uh, that the minister has paused this but he hasn't brought about an end to it and that in time the HSE plan to close the emergency department and with that the ICU beds will be implemented and of course uh, the argument that we expect to hear is that that's the advice from the experts as you were putting it to some of the people there on Saturday. Uh, Is it not something that should be done if it's going to result in saving lives? Uh, But the people who are working on the front line have their opinions and uh, their expert medical opinions and uh, apparently some of them were out in support of the protest as well. Did you meet any staff from the hospital? Yes, Michael, I so happened to bump into two nurses just as the march was starting on Saturday. Unfortunately, I didn't get their names with everything that was going on around us, but I did ask them why they turned out in support of the rally. She's in the ward, but I am in the theatre. Yeah, though we are not in ANA, but still we feel, we feel the, you know, the worries worries and fear of the other staff and even with the people in, in this Navan. Navan is a very big hospital uh, place with a big population. So that's what that's what we are thinking. Why do they have to close the hospital? And what do your colleagues feel in the in the hospital? People you work with, they obviously, you know, they, they don't know is it going to stay open, is it going to close? What what's that like for them? Oh, they're all kind of affected, but um, hospital assures us that we are not going to lose our job. It's just, they said, it's for the best, it's for the best of the people. But we are here to support as a community of Navan. Navan is a fast-growing community in county, in the county, like in, especially in County Meath. It's uh, two of uh, the nurses uh, from Our Lady's Hospital in Navan speaking at that rally on Saturday to Mark O'Driscoll. Uh, before you finish up, Mark, uh, maybe you tell us a little bit about what uh, people heard from the speakers because there were a number of uh, people who spoke to the crowd who gave up their Saturday afternoon to attend this rally. What did they say to them? Well, I suppose, Michael, that the crowd 
address or the, the speakers addressed the crowd directly insofar as the hospital was right across the road from us up the top of Bruce Hill just near the entrance to Navin O'Mahony's GAA club there and I suppose they were telling people that you know we could be here again in a few weeks if this doesn't go away and basically not to take no for an answer if the HSE are insistent on closing the A&E at the hospital. Okay and I think we can finish by hearing one of uh, the speakers. Thanks for the report uh, Mark and uh, for my monitoring all of that for us over the weekend uh, for that matter. As I say, we can hear one of uh, the speakers uh, from Saturday now, uh, a local GP, Dr Rory Hanley, and this is what he had to say to people. For the last 20 months, they have dealt with a pandemic that has shocked the world. They've saved so many lives in our intensive care unit, in our ED, on our medical ward. And can you imagine where we would have been without them? Let me tell you what would have happened. We would have had patients dying on trolleys far from home, suffocating in the back of an ambulance. But thanks to those wonderful staff over there, they survived, they lived, and they returned home to their families. Now, of course, it's the HSC have their way. None of that would have happened. Because as we know, for the last 10 years, we've been told our hospital is unsafe. It needed to be downgraded. And they always give me the same line, safety. Now, I may have only been a doctor for 20 years, which makes me relatively young, I suppose, but I must have missed the lecture on safety that said a trolley in Drogheda was somehow better than a bed in Navarra. I must have also missed a lecture that said suffocating in the back of an ambulance was better than an intensive care bed. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, I'm not the one who needs a bloody lecture on patient safety. (laughs) Moving on, these wonderful people in the HSC who spent those head honchos in Dublin, who spent much of the pandemic at home watching Netflix on full pay, while your hospital staff were saving lives. Well, those, those beauties, those beauties in the HSC are back behind their desks now after a heroic pandemic. And what's the first thing they do? Straight back to what they call transformation. They never call it downgrading, do they? No, it's transformation. It sounds so much better, like they're doing you all a bloody favor. Well, let me tell you about transformation. It's transferring, transforming a bed in Navan into a trotter, a trolley in Drogheda. It's transforming an ICU bed into the back of an ambulance. And it's transforming living people into dead people in a mortuary. That's what transformation is. That's uh, just some of uh, the speech given by local GP Dr. Rory Hanley in Navin on Saturday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the midterm is over and ahead of uh, the return to school today, the Chief Medical Officer issued a statement last night. Dr. Tony Houlihan said, I'm conscious that parents and guardians will be concerned about the high level of incidence of COVID-19 among the 5 to 12 age group, particularly as children head back to school on Monday after the midterm. The CMO said he wanted to reassure people and that international evidence tells us that in the vast majority of cases, children who become infected with COVID-19 experience mild symptoms or are asymptomatic. And the public health advice is based on scientific evidence and uh, the direct experience of uh, the pandemic in uh, this country, which shows that child-to-child transmission is uncommon in school settings where there are preventative measures in place like 
those throughout our schools. Let's uh, speak uh, to uh, the Teachers Union, the INTO. Joe McKeown is president of uh, the Irish National Teachers Organisation. A very good morning to you, Joe, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, were you reassured by what uh, Dr Houlihan had to say? Well, I think the first thing to say is that Dr. Hulan neglected to mention that teachers are also concerned. I mean, you know, we're all concerned about the rising incidence of cases. Uh, and I do think that certainly we all understand that if Dr. Hulan felt that it wasn't safe for schools to reopen, no school would reopen. Um, and I do think what he says is also an acknowledgement that what principals and teachers are doing, that the mitigation measures that we're putting in place and uh, over recent times, uh, you know, have been effective uh, in the past. It's reducing uh, the spread, but it's not stopping the spread, obviously. It's not stopping mm. the spread. And mm. I think that's, that, that the bit that we would want to, like to contribute to the discussion is this, that principals are really, really concerned that the number of cases is increasing very, very rapidly. And we had 2,400 primary school pupils who had COVID in the, in the week before the midterm break. Mm. And the other thing, I suppose, Michael, just to explain to your listeners is this, but this time last year, if there was a COVID case in my school uh, as a principal, when I was a principal last year, the HSE would contact me and they would say to the principal of the school, they would do a, a comprehensive risk assessment of where the child was sitting, uh, whether the windows were open or closed, whether people were masked, who was sitting beside the child, and they would establish whether the child was infectious when they were in school. And everybody had confidence then, a principal could go to a teacher and the parents to say, we've had a public health risk assessment. This Halloween, I've had principals on to me saying, look, we're getting told by parents that their child has tested positive. We're getting told maybe there's six, seven in the one class. And yet we are given no advice as to what we should do next. Mm. Um, and we think that's unacceptable, that we really feel that we need to go back we have a much more transmissible virus now, a variant of the virus, and we need to have the proper public health risk assessments. Otherwise, we feel that the situation will get unmanageable. And tell us a little bit more about how it was done. Uh, my child was sitting beside your child, uh, and my child had COVID and was deemed to be infectious. Uh, what would uh, the advice to be, be to your child? Well, the very first case that I had uh, in a junior infant class, as it was, uh, the public health people sat down with me, it was over the phone, and we went through all of the details. And the advice was that in the class, they paid particular attention to the children who were facing the child who was infectious rather than the ones who were beside. And they identified that there were three children who should remain at home along with the child who was infectious. Um, And nobody else in the class uh, got COVID. Mm. No other staff member did, and it was contained. And there were no uh, conditions to that. Uh, I mean, would they be telling children to stay at home if they didn't have symptoms? Well, th- they were, yes. I mean, they, they were mm. saying very, very soon. And that is a problem. Yeah, well, it's nowhere. a big problem, I think. And reading the CMO's statement last night, I think I'd be very concerned uh, if I was a, a teacher. Uh, because as Dr. Tony Houlihan says, children experience either mild symptoms or no symptoms. So if you don't test them, you don't know if they have COVID. And that means that there must be plenty of children in classrooms with COVID. And, and that is the concern. And, and, and just to give you a specific example from the past week uh, of, a, of a principal who was notified just before the midterm break by parents of two cases in a particular class. By the middle of the midterm break, it was six cases. By the end of the midterm break, it was 10 cases. The principal officially wasn't supposed to say anything to anybody. 
but the teacher in the class uh, was pregnant um, and there were concerns. Obviously, people would be anxious and the teacher was hearing herself from parents that there were cases in her class uh, and it created a lot of anxiety. Um, and principals have spent a lot of the midterm break being the only contact that parents have uh, for for when their children uh, are, 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 are have COVID nineteen, mm. and so it's a real big concern. We we believe, and we believe very clearly, that when the contact tracing was removed, we were told it was because cases were stabilising and reducing. But we now know that cases are not doing that; that the number of cases is going up, and the number of primary school children who had COVID nineteen in the week before Halloween was fifty percent higher. And in, in at the beginning of October, and you can be absolutely certain that the number of children with COVID nineteen at the end of this week will be higher again and higher again the, the mm. following week. And so will we probably be higher than the number that were counted because if they're asymptomatic Correct. and they're not being contact or, con, uh, or traced and not tested, but then how do you know that they have COVID or how many people have it for that matter? That's absolutely. Yes, yes. And, and of course, all of the children were out last night uh, and I'm sure they had a, a great time. You hope they had a great time and then we're all very safe. Yep, yep, uh, yep, the the yep, ones in my estate yep, were, yep. were, were, were outdoors and yep. I, I noticed that they were going in smaller groups instead mm. of, whereas previous years we had nine or ten calling. Yep. It was great to see them there in, in twos and fours and it was great to see them out. Okay, but it does add to the risk, as you say, yeah. after the midterm. And, and uh, what about the teachers? Are, are teachers falling sick? Yes, yeah, so what's happening is the same as the rest of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that there's additional risk because teachers are vaccinated, which is which is a fantastic uh, improvement on last year. But the same as the rest of the community, what's happening is that teachers are being identified sometimes as close contacts. There's a little bit of concern among teachers who are vaccinated um, and who are told, yeah, you're a close contact, but you can still carry on your movement as normal. In other words, go into school as normal because you're vaccinated. Um, and some teachers are choosing then to go and get tests themselves just to to make sure, a PCR test themselves, to make sure that it's safe for them to go into school. Um, and that's causing a delay of, of a couple of days and, and absences. But those teachers are trying to be responsible. And I'm sure yeah. some of them are, are coming back with positive results. I know of people myself who have been told yeah. that they can continue because they're vaccinated, as was the case, but they've gone and got tested and proved positive. Yeah, and I think it, we have to acknowledge that very few responsible people would walk into a room of 25 unvaccinated, unmasked people mm if they thought they were a close contact with COVID. Yeah. And, 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 and that has to be a factor. So all of these things are, 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 are a problem. But the key thing is, if we bring in contact, reintroduce contact tracing, and if we see if, pilot, if antigen testing has a role to play. So if, for example, a child has been identified as a close contact, and if the family are given antigen tests, uh, and, they do, and, and if the child is asymptomatic, and... Uh, the antigen test shows them up as negative, you know, every second day or every day, mm. and they continue to sc- come to school in a monitored way like that. You know, I think we, we we could we could protect the children's education and keep everybody safe, and uh, I think that's something we'd all like. Okay, so, so you must have been disappointed by the T shock yesterday. Well, the T shock, uh, in, in fairness, there was a slight movement uh, from what he had said the previous day. The T shock said we won't return to widespread contact tracing. And as I've outlined to you there, if we had contact tracing, because he doesn't want, you know, a load of children missing school when they don't have to, you know, if they're not, if they're not, if they're not uh, COVID positive. And I think if we do a combination of the antigen testing 
and which the Tornista uh, seems to be acknowledging will, will, can happen, um, then I think the Taoiseach's concerns can be addressed. Uh, and I would hope that when we meet with the Department of Education this week, that we will work together to keep our schools safe and open from now until Christmas. Because if we do nothing, I would be concerned. OK, we leave it there for the moment. But thank you indeed uh, for joining you, us this morning. That's uh, Joe McKeown, who's the president of the Irish National Teachers Organisation, the INTO. Michael Reed on LMFM. Walking the gauntlet of abuse, uh, threatened uh, by assault, physical violence and constant harassment. Rail workers have voted this week on uh, potential industrial action, which may include work stoppages. Dermot O'Leary is uh, the General Secretary of the NBRU, the National Bus and Rail Drivers Union. A very good morning to you, Dermot, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What is it that you want to be done if this industrial action is... Uh, uh, to um, be averted. Look, I suppose, I suppose immediate, the most immediate call, really, and I suppose the reason we highlight this issue once again, and we're, I suppose, five or six years involved in highlighting this issue at the stage because year on year the incidents go up uh, and acknowledged by the employer that they go up year on year. I suppose our first protocol in, in, in highlighting this is to say to the employer, like, despite the efforts of, of increased budgets, you know, text alerts, CCTV, uh, all very admirable, but they're all reactionary uh, to the type of behaviour that you outline there. So we're saying to the employer on behalf of members, you need to, uh, you know, you need to ensure that there's a safe work environment for the people that work in public transport in the first instance, and that's where the target for the industrial action is. But beyond that, uh, we believe that there's a lot more involved than just ourselves in the employer. Uh, obviously, government have a role here. Mm. to the Department of Transport, to the Department of Justice. Uh, and again, look, there's been a number of commitments given in the report from the government that, that you know, directly speak to this issue. One is a transport forum where all stakeholders could get around the table on a regular basis to discuss issues of concern. Uh, and this would obviously be one of those uh, discussing that forum. There's also an issue in the forum of government where the government speak, uh, the incoming government at the time last year spoke about maybe increasing the powers of Gardaí and we've been calling for a dedicated Garda Public Transport Division for quite a while now. And just to clear up some confusion, Michael, on that one, we're talking about a dedicated Garda Division as part of the Garda, exclusive to public transport uh, trains and indeed buses as well, where a lot of incidents are occurring as well. Mm. So, look, there's lots of strands to this, Michael. Okay. Uh, I suppose we've all been hearing over the weekend about the drug taking, the drug dealing, uh, the assaults and the abuse uh, that are meted out uh, to your members on a a daily basis, it seems. Is it because it's not being policed? Is it anarchy in actual fact? Look, I suppose you could describe as that, but probably be accused of, you know, overhyping it. But certainly in terms of the experience of our members, and again, it's not exclusive, I suppose. A number of years ago, I could come on a show at this and talk about hotspots in different parts of the country, mainly in urban centres. But no, this type of behaviour is spread far and wide. And it's not exclusive to any railway line, although some of the behaviour on the car government line, you know, probably is extreme in that it's serious, it bores on, it's not actual serious crime. Uh, so, look, I suppose the Irish Rail, and again, you know, whilst they're the employer and they're, you know, obliged to provide a safe working environment, they've tried it with increased budgets and security. But remember one thing security, and it doesn't matter where they are, we're talking about public transport in this instance, they don't have the powers of detention and arrest. And again, one of the issues here, of course, there's no sanction, there's no consequences for the type of behaviour uh, that our people are being exposed to. Is it safe to get on a, a train or a bus for that matter? Well, look, I, 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 the statistics would show uh, that, that the vast majority of journeys in, in public transport, trains and buses are safe, and that's a fact. They can't deny that, right? But the problem we have really is, and I've said this, and Minister Ryan was out on Friday dismissing 
uh, the call for the Garda Public Transport Division. And you know, you talk about the Minister for Transport, who's also the Minister for Climate Change, and we we all join. Certainly, the MBIU have been advocating for reduction of the carbon footprint again for a while. Uh, but how do you encourage people back onto public transport post-pandemic? Those that use it previously, and never mind new patrons on the public transport. If they're reading it and listening to shows like this, reading their mainstream and social media, uh, and talking about and seeing incidents of you know, the type of behaviour that we've described, mm. you know, correspondence to, to the company and government last Friday. So it's a difficult one to square. But what, what won't square probably is even though we have no choice but to act on members they have. Industrial action is, is I suppose, a consequence uh, of the unsafe work environment. But certainly there needs to be discussions. And I suppose I am encouraged. Uh, reading The Independent this morning uh, where the Taoiseach appears to be committed to, to dealing with this head-on uh, and if those words from the Taoiseach and those commitments from the Taoiseach can be translated into that type of forum where people can get around the table pretty quickly and come up with different interventions to try and address this um, and again there's many mm. there's many many stakeholders uh, involved there Well if you had a, a camera in every carriage of a, a train it would help wouldn't it I mean when a train leaves a station uh, the journey between that and the next station uh, is anybody's guess you're kind of in the hands of the gods and if something does happen well there's no way uh, of anybody knowing about it until you arrive at the next station cameras that would help and as you say guards uh, and if every Garda division uh, deployed uh, a couple of guardy a couple of days a week to check on trains uh, that would send out a message as well is that the kind of thing that you're asking for well, look, it, 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 it's to a certain extent, but that, 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 won't, that, won't, that won't work the article here because there is CCTV on most trains now these days. But again, you're looking, at, you're looking at something after the event. The problem with, with trains and the nature of trains is that, uh, as opposed to a, you know, a vehicle like a bus, you can stop a bus midstream. It's very hard to stop a train midstream in between stations. Uh, the experience of all members at the Gary are doing their best when called. But if you can imagine a journey you know, from, from Cork uh, to Dublin, uh, and this is happening on a regular basis, the, the customer service agent on board or the train horses they're called rings ahead Gardaí are called sometimes the Gardaí are at the next station sometimes because of the timing they're not there and it's difficult you know what I mean but, but if there was a dedicated Gardaí public transport division couldn't be a Gardaí on every train of course they couldn't ask but certainly the mere fact that they exist and you could be arrested for your behaviour and you could face you know fines or even prison sentences mm. that might dissuade people from engaging in type of behaviour so again look there has been the occasional Gardaí blitz in cooperation with Irish Rail and security staff there but that's all very grand for cameras to come in take a few pictures and you know it's grand sound but it's torn up on Twitter and that's grand but that doesn't solve the problem we're talking about here Okay well something has to be done quite obviously or, or you'll be taking industrial action Dermot thank oh. you indeed uh, for joining thank us you, uh, this you. morning Dermot O'Leary is uh, the General Secretary of the NBRU some of uh, the comments coming to us Derek is in Dundalk and he called us about the hospital in Navin saying fair play to everybody who took to the streets to make their feelings known uh, about uh, our ladies and its importance and the need to protect it however he says will it make any difference only time will tell the HSE and the government seem to be intent on downgrading the smaller hospitals putting even more pressure on big hospitals like the Lords and Connolly which can't cope with uh, the demand on services as things stand uh, Susan is in Ashburn and Susan called us today as well and she says it seems crazy that there's no longer contact tracing in schools parents should be informed if there is a, a positive case in the class that their child is in instead they're being left 
left in the dark, not really sure what's going on, which is very unfair, especially if uh, there's a vulnerable person at home in the house. Thanks uh, for the call to the programme today as well. Susan, some of uh, the text messages. Margaret says, fantastic crowd at uh, the rally on Saturday. I hope our two elected reps, uh, Damien English and Thomas Byrne, who failed to the show, will take note that people who marched are their constituents who they are supposed to represent and they feel let down badly by them. Both of them, while they were in opposition, supported the campaign, but it empowered a different story. Thanks for nothing, says Margaret. Thank you indeed, Margaret. Uh, And let's not forget uh, that uh, the two ministers uh, that you speak about have said that nothing is going to happen in the hospital, that they've been reassured by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, in respect of that, at least for the foreseeable future. Deirdre texting us to tell us about uh, that tractor that she was on the back of. Uh, Mark uh, certainly gave a a clear picture of that earlier, Deirdre. Uh, Somebody else says Stephen Donnelly doesn't know what he's talking about. John and Trim says he was at the march. Great turnout, but very disappointed by the coverage on uh, the television. Uh, Let's stand up uh, to these faceless people who want it all closed, says uh, John. Another text says says, Michael, I'm afraid the people of Meath are fighting a losing battle. Decisions are already made. We in Dundalk did the same to protect our hospital here in Louth, uh, but it didn't work. We're a sticky plaster station now, says our caller. Thank you indeed to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the news uh, that Onboard Planola has uh, granted planning permission for a bypass of RD will be welcome as many and seen as great news uh, to solve what has been a dreadful local problem. But friends of RD Bog are outraged by the news and we're joined now by Anne Lennon, spokesperson for the group. Good morning to you, Anne, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, you got this news on Friday, I take it. We did. Good morning, Michael, and hello everyone this morning and the 1st of November. A lovely morning. Yes, we got the news on um, Thursday, actually, and uh, we were very shocked, to say the least of it, Michael. I suppose the shock comes from an understanding that environments are treasured and to to be protected. And we would have anticipated that there would be some understanding that a peatland was a treasured, valuable environment. Um, And because the road is to be tracked through peatlands, which is the RD Cotaway Bog, and in particular the proposed National Heritage Area, um, we would have expected that on board Panola would have at the very least indicated the need for um, an, an environmental assessment um, to evaluate the impact on the natural flora and fauna and the ecosystem mm. that it is going through. Um, and it's, it's shocking because I suppose I live here and I live beside people who have had to, who have built houses in the vicinity on their lands over the years and the extensive environment impact assessments they have to do within the very same catchment. Um, it, it, it just seems very inconsistent and I don't know what's, what's the, the rule or the standard that's been applied mm. to one development as against another one. Is there something ironic uh, about this decision given what's happening in Glasgow at the moment and people coming from every corner of uh, the world to think about what can be done to save the planet? 
It is. I, 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 you know, that's an added layer to it, um, Michael. We we had been concerned about this, but when we saw the design and the plan, and I have to be honest, I live in RD and I love the town, um, and I've watched the traffic problems in it, and I have sympathy for the traffic that's difficult coming through the town and the discomfort mm. for people. Um, but I also have observed a change in in the the concentration where the traffic congestion is and it worries me that the decision made in 1999-2001 as to where they would put this bypass Mm. is the one that they are sticking to regardless as to how the traffic and the congestion has evolved in the 21 years because for people who would say and I agree with them it is difficult to get through RD but the difficulty is on the southern end where all the new housing developments have happened Bridgegate and you have the school 1,200 pupils going to school and they all get bottlenecked at the church junction and the narrow um, Norman Bridge. Whereas this bypass is at the other end of the town completely and will only alleviate some traffic congestion. Now it will alleviate some but I feel the cost benefit analysis is not worth it and the cost is the damage that's irreparable to a peatland and the peatland, a very interesting um, a piece of information that as a scientist, and it would be a PhD student in National University of Ireland, Galway, has um, is doing her PhD on. Yeah. One, one square metre of peatland sequesters the same amount of carbon as one hectare of the um, rainforests. So we, that's only on the surface. Yeah. So many, many square metres will have to be excavated to mm. make space for this road. Well, as I say, and that's the kind carbon. of conversation that they'll be having in Glasgow and the COP26 will be looking at uh, things uh, that help to protect uh, the environment and to absorb carbon for that matter. Uh, but uh, they're also talking about uh, the knock-on uh, effect of that uh, and the impact that it's going to have uh, on maybe 500 species that will become extinct as a result of man's footprint on the planet and you're very concerned for exactly that reason because of the curlew. Yeah and can you credit this and I, I, I trust me I'm not making this up just this morning my neighbour who lives right smack at the fencing at Mullinstown Towns Park has sent me video footage of a pair of curlew singing to one another right at the fencing area. And at the same time, there are two people, um, officials, measuring the road. Mm. Um, the irony of that, uh, you know, is, is, is uncomfortable, to say the least of it. It's almost like we pretend we don't see what we're doing and what answers will we give to the next generation and the generations to come when one by one various species um, we've lost the corn quick from the bog, now the curlew and what's next and what we don't seem to take um, account of is we are all the same species, we're interdependent and if we respect nature nature respects us we have to work in harmony and some kind of respect for our nature we, we can't bully nature, it will come back and bite us in, you know, in mm. the proverbial because even looking back over the history of the bog, in 1843, the then, with good intention, um, there was uh, an act passed to flood, um, to, to drain the bog 
and in 1849 there was a massive flood in the Nobber, six kilometre region of Nobber, back into the River Dee Basin. Now we, we have a designated flood zone exactly where this road is mm. to be developed. What account is there going to be given to the people whose homes and properties become more flooded in years to come? Okay. If we would leave the peatland to soak and work as it does, it soaks up the water and releases it in a measured way, in a natural way. Mm. It's what it does. It's its nature. It's inherent in peatland. Be that as it may, though, uh, the board obviously doesn't agree with you and Board Planella yes. has made its decision and yes. the road is uh, to go ahead. But you say that's not the end of it. Yes, I, I do really because um, for starters we had no input into the board so I don't know what documentation you know was put before the board for them to make this determination. Obviously they're basing it on the submission they got. So we don't know what was in that and we have no input. So now we have no choice but to look at a different route which is to seek a judicial review and that would be to look at the procedure and the protocol and what was you know how the whole thing has got to this particular point in the context of the current um legislation and climate and habitat directives okay belief what what measure what standard is being used um to make this determination all right that's an expensive decision you're making isn't it it is. It is. It is. Mm, okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's not one anybody would take lightly. But I do feel an ethical onus um, to nature and to the future of the community mm. because I don't want a false dawn for RD where traffic congestion continues after we have this road built with all its flaws and all the damage it could do to the environment. Okay. People still stuck on the Drogheda Road saying, well, you know, um, our politicians and our decision makers told us that this would solve our problem. And it hasn't. Okay. And where are we? We're worse off. And I have to leave there. Thanks for joining us, Anne Lennon, spokesperson with Friends of RD Bog. Now, Anne, you might actually want to sit back and uh, take a a listen uh, and think of uh, those two curlews singing to each other as we listen to David Attenborough. Despite the overwhelming benefits of a healthy planet, many human actions are destroying biodiversity. Changes to habitats for grazing, mining and crop production, including the use of harmful fertilisers, have had a huge impact on land and sea. We hunt animals for meat and prize body parts. More than 300 mammal species risk being consumed to extinction. And then there's climate change. This affects the whole world putting huge pressure on wildlife. In 2016 and 2017, half the corals in the Great Barrier Reef died as a result of the warming of the seas. So what must we do now to slow down the crisis we are faced with? In addition to cutting our carbon emissions, we must find ways of using land and water that cause the least damage to the environment, leaving enough space for natural habitats to thrive. Now, this is actually part of a video that David Attenborough has made ahead of COP26 and part of his message to the world leaders who are trying to tackle climate change. We must urgently protect the so-called biodiversity hotspots 
But equally, we should be rebuilding biodiversity wherever and however we can. Sometimes this is as simple as giving plants and animals the space they need to succeed. And sometimes they need hands-on management from humans. In 2020, with the help of reintroduction experts in the south of England, white stalk chicks hatched for the first time in 600 years. Hands-on management was also critical to restoring the population of mountain gorillas in the Virunga National Park in Central Africa. This included using a proportion of the money raised through tourism to help human communities coexist with their animal neighbors. We must provide pathways for global development that work with rather than against nature. And we need to give the communities affected a seat at the table. The benefits provided by nature are indispensable for making human life both possible and worth living. We need all the riches of our living planet to help us live healthy, happy lives long into the future. The one and only David Attenborough, his message uh, to COP26. I'm not sure what he think, but I don't think he'd be too pleased to know that they're going to uh, build a road through our debug. Let's uh, go to more of your comments. Uh, some messages that have come to us uh, through WhatsApp. Uh, somebody saying the Tala Hospital Group were in touch uh, to say well done to all involved with uh, the Save Navin Hospital rally at the weekend. Keep up uh, the good work and you have our full backing. Well, thanks. Uh, I think it's Richie if I remember correctly. Uh, but thanks to all in the Tala Hospital Group. Uh, Joanne in Rathmoylan uh, contacted us about the opening piece on Navin. She says her mother was cared for during uh, the pandemic in the hospital. That was back in April 20. The care she was given was above and beyond anything you could have expected. Sadly, her mother passed away, but her care was excellent and uh, the level of uh, support given to the family was brilliant. Joanne says she cannot impact the effect on people's lives uh, if uh, the hospital which cannot uh, imagine the impact uh, that the effect on people's lives would be if the hospital was to close uh, thanks uh, Joanne uh, for your message to the programme today as well uh, another caller in touch to say that pointing out how children with COVID are asymptomatic and spreading COVID even though they are not sick is describing 93% of the adult population the vaccinated are symptomatic spreaders uh, as well I presume that should be asymptomatic and we need to, to acknowledge this. Vaccinated people are driving this surge undoubtedly, says our caller. Uh, well, I think uh, the lack of contact tracing uh, probably is because I think there's probably a lot of people who have COVID who don't know they have it because they're not sick because they've been vaccinated, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, but if they stay at home uh, until... Uh, the virus passed through them, well then perhaps there'll be fewer people with it and fewer people not getting sick and God knows what it's doing to the unvaccinated because they're getting very sick when they get COVID, which is why we hope everybody takes the right decision and decides to get vaccinated. But thank you indeed uh, for your message to the programme today as well. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Now, it's a long time ago since uh, Garda Tony Golden was murdered. It goes back uh, to the 11th of October 2015 when he was shot dead by Adrian Craven Mackin. Uh, Mackin also shot his partner, Siobhan Phillips, four times uh, before taking his own life on uh, the same date. Siobhan Phillips miraculously 
survived uh, the shooting uh, and her family and indeed I'm sure the family of uh, Garda Tony Golden are, are continuing to wait on a report into why Adrian Craven Mackin was at liberty to do all of this. There's certainly lots of questions and it seems as though part of the delay is a lack of cooperation from local Gardaí. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sinn Féin TD, Rory Omuraku. Uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. This is a six-year delay that we're looking uh, at in terms of uh, the families getting sight of this report. There had been an interim report, but the main, uh, the, the final report uh, is being delayed. Uh, and according to the Irish Times, uh, a spokesperson for GSOC, said it's a complex case made more complex by the interrelated challenges of COVID, accessing documentation and securing witness cooperation. And I take it many of those witnesses are, are Gardaí and Dundalk Station. Well, uh, as I say, I think many people will come to to that conclusion. And and look, we all accept here that there have been certain delays in the last period in relation to COVID. But but we're talking about something that goes back uh, a lot further. And and look, we we all know we're dealing with a tragedy where obviously a woman was dreadfully injured. But beyond that, uh, a a guard had died uh, going uh, about his duty. And obviously the interim report and some of the other information that's in the public domain leads to many, many questions, um, whether we're talking about Crevin Mackin and the fact that uh, he breached bail 10 times, whether we're talking about the fact that some of the Pulse intelligence information didn't necessarily contain that the information that he may have had access to weaponry. Look, and we don't need to go into the all the ins and outs in relation to, you know, the particular cases and the particular charges that were outstanding as well. Oh, the domestic himself. violence that should have been known. Uh, I mean, uh, Siobhan's father took her to the Garda station at one time, black and blue. And there's questions over how Gardaí acted or if they sat in their hands. Well, look... As I say, like you're talking about domestic violence, you're talking about access to weaponry, you're talking about information that wasn't necessarily there for Tony Golden on that day. So look, all this needs answered. The family here, multiple people have been looking for this GSOC report. Um, the interim report is is sufficiently damning in itself. I'm aware that it has also... It, the Minister for Justice obviously has a copy of that, or you know, man, many ministers for justice have uh, have had uh, a copy of that since 2019. The Garda Commissioner has a copy of that, um, but uh, and I know that the that the family, like the Sean Phillips himself, would have had difficulty in relation to you know getting information back from from GSOC, and I I think at this point that they will be looking for a face-to-face meeting in relation to GSOC and whatever these difficulties are. But the fact is there's a necessity that these questions are answered, that this report is brought back here to the people that need clarity on it, but beyond that into the public domain and Mm. that whatever learnings uh, need to be learned are dealt with. Because we cannot have a continuity of, you know, situations like that where people are put in danger. um, You you know, when when the information is there that could possibly have led to a different outcome. What do you think um, happened here? Because... I mean, if somebody is out on bail, if uh, they break the bail conditions, they're rearrested and put in prison, aren't they? Uh, Macken had uh, breached bail conditions ten times, but was never rearrested. 
Right. See, your, uh, the absolute best read you could make of this is that there was an utter lack of protocol or checkups or anything. Now, obviously, there is a... There's obviously a number of people that say there are serious questions to ask, you know, and that's in relation to what was the role um, of Creven Mackin. Um, you know, it, 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 it's out there in the public domain, you know, in the sense of was he an informer? Was he something beyond that? Because I, I know you can have an informer mm-hmm. that provides information in relation to an organisation and people he's involved in. But, you know, so you think he might have been turning a blind eye, even though there was a, 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 a suspicion that he might have been importing weapons. He was arrested with two handguns and bomb making equipment. Well, look, these are incredibly serious charges. I'm not sure that many people in those sort of set of circumstances over the years would have necessarily got bail. I am fairly sure that anybody that was in breach of bail conditions would have been in serious difficulty and, yes, would have been rearrested. So, like I said, there are many questions that need to be answered. And as I said, the best case scenario, you have a huge breach of protocols or a lack of protocols or whatever. And and we cannot forget how this ended. This ended in absolute tragedy you know and here the Gardaí lost a member of their force and obviously the golden family um lost uh, lost a f- lost a father lost a husband you know th- this is like and all we need to make sure from here on in mm. is what exactly happened why it happened why those decisions were made and that we make sure that we don't allow situations like this to continue into mm. the future because th- this is not on and look beyond that uh, I have had discussions with Sean Phillips. I'm aware that they are looking for an Article 2 compliant inquest, that um, his legal team have been in contact with the minister, have been in contact with the attorney general. And now all the fingers are pointing back to the coroner's office in Louth. I accept that there have been difficulties as regards COVID in relation to, you know, carry out certain things mm. but we are we're, we're, once again as I say we're dealing with an incredibly serious situation I, I have already had myself in formal contacts with the minister or, or you know with her at, at this stage with uh, ministers and ministers of state in relation to this but but I believe I'll be doing it in a in a more formal setup mm. and, and looking for for answers because look we, we've had a number of let's say the stools of what would you call justice uh, of the justice system that 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 haven't kicked into play and that's that's two things that's obviously the gsoc report which we believe should have happened in a more speedy fashion and then beyond that that we should have had uh, we should have had uh, an inquest uh, an article 2 compliant inquest because we're we're not talking about as i say simple breaches of rules we're not talking about something where there were no consequences we're talking about an absolute tragedy and we're talking about somebody that was out on bail was in breach of bail conditions had access to weapons that even local guardie on checking pulse were not able to find out information in relation to that and all of this led to the death of tony golden and obviously uh, mm. the serious injury of of Siobhan Phillips and, and he, should have have been, si- he should have signed on uh, in Dundalk Art Station on the 7th of October he didn't it was the 10th time that he didn't sign on uh, on the 11th of October four days later uh, he killed Tony Golden and shot uh, Siobhan Phillips it's incredible isn't it well, well, well that's it look uh, and as somebody said 
a, a breach once unless should have been sufficient for action to be taken but 10 times like you you know people don't see if you told somebody the actual ins and outs of this particular case nobody would believe you only that we have it as i say in uh, official information that's in the public domain look it's it's absolutely ridiculous it doesn't make any sense as i said Mm. You at the very best, and, and that, that's terrible terminology. This is an absolute disaster as regards what sort of protocols, what sort of checks you have for somebody who is out on very serious charges. Who obviously, um, if you look at their entire backstory, there were serious question marks in relation to them and what they were capable of doing. And then beyond that, they were in breach of bail. 10 times, uh, as I say, with numerous other issues, and nothing was done. So it's it's not hard to see why people see a huge element of conspiracy in relation to this, but it's a, but the question is, the questions are there. So what we need is a system that will provide answers. Mm. And in those answers, I believe we can look into the future of definitely better protocols in relation to making sure this doesn't happen. Okay. And it does, it does ask questions in relation to uh, the use of certain characters like that like this you know you know whether if they were yeah. being used mm -hmm. as informers mm -hmm. or and here we have had cases in the state of people being used beyond that and well obviously in the history of this island where it, it's it's a bit beyond even being an informer and you know uh, uh, you know you, you've had cases of you know agent provocateurs and, and mm -hmm. all the rest mm -hmm. of it so look we need definite checks and balances in relation to all that and but we cannot forget the scenario where we've had we Tony Golden lost his life mm. and uh, a woman was seriously injured yeah. and it, and the information was not available that should have been available to local guards and that's before you get into the ins and outs of the breaches of bail and well, the question yeah. is whether he you know that anyone else in that set of circumstances you would like to think would have already been rearrested. Well if there was any doubt uh, as to whether Mackham was a, a dangerous man before the 11th of October 2015 there was no doubt uh, about it after that and uh, that is why he was in front of the Special Criminal Court initially uh, when he was remanded in custody and uh, maybe we could talk about Sinn Féin's position on that uh, hugely successful Ordesh over the weekend, a very confident party uh, and one uh, that has changed its mind on the use of the Special Criminal Court or at least courts uh, that uh, would hear trials without juries uh, would have been a good position to have had in 2015 would it not? No, look, our position has been that we have obviously been against the special, special Criminal Court. We are still against the Special Criminal Court. We welcome the fact that there is a review ongoing in relation to the entire system. What we have allowed for um, is the, the that in exceptional cases, there may be situations um, if jurors were to be in danger or anything where you might have a situation where, where you might need a non-jury court. Uh, and I know this has been enacted in certain jurisdictions and, and probably only operated in, 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 very, in a very small amount of cases. Did you vote for the motion? I did. Okay, you sound as though you're against it. No, 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 okay. no, no. I, okay. I voted yeah. completely for the motion because I believe yeah. what what I'm looking for, and, and we, we've spoken many times in relation to this, is that we need a justice system that can deal with the sort of criminals that we have in this yeah. day and age. Now, I accept human rights compliance is an absolute necessity. See, if we want to go back into the history of the Special Criminal Court, it's a wee bit more than just the fact that it was non-jury. There was obviously a system in play. You know, you had a conveyor belt 
as you may have as you would have had in north in relation to dealing with republicans mm. and if we go back to the 1970s you would have had the heavy gang and you know other issues like that so i don't think human rights compliance was necessarily part of okay. that but mary uh, mcdonald said yesterday that uh, she'd be happy for ira cases to be tried in a court without a jury well what she said is any case that if the requirement is there from a point of view of securing jurors, then that can go ahead. The fact is, I, I don't see any that there will be any IRA cases in the sense of the IRA are out of the equation. Uh, I don't recognize some of these other organizations as being the IRA. And again, but if there is a necessity that is shown and probably should be determined by a judge rather than the DPP, then uh, if there's a necessity for that, well, then, yeah, the case should go okay. ahead in a, in a non-jury setup. All That's right. what we voted for. But again, we'll wait the outworkings of this review and uh, we'll see where that brings us. But we all know we need a system that's fit to deal with the situation we have, particularly as regards organised gangland uh, mm-hmm. and particularly those involved in the drugs trade okay. and all the violence and intimidation that goes with it. Need to leave it there because we're out of time but thank you for your time and for joining us as always Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Mead Rory O'Murku Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, I want to thank uh, Joe and Mary Smith who've uh, written to me and uh, they've both recently retired and paid off uh, their mortgage after 40 years. It's a, a great feeling, I'm sure, except they're not happy about the property tax. They say in their letter, we think this is very unfair and an abuse of elderly people by our government. Our weekly combined amount of contributory old age pension is 496.60 which we have worked for since the ages of 16 in low paid employment. We have to have our house valued now which will cost €150 and then we have to employ a tax consultant to submit our returns online as we don't know how to use a computer and there is no facility to submit our returns by post. Michael, we uh, would appreciate it if you could raise this issue with some local TDs uh, that they've mentioned. What they want to know is why in their wisdom they impose property tax on old age pensioners who are already living on the breadline. I am 100% sure we are not the only old age pensioners who are living on very low pensions and not able to submit uh, their returns online. The government departments just presume that everyone is computer literate and that they don't make provision for people who are not. Well, thanks uh, to Joe and Mary, as uh, I say, uh, for taking the time to write that. And uh, it's a, a, an interesting thought. Uh, I wonder if uh, they're right in their assumption that they're not the only ones who are in that situation. Let's uh, talk to Anne Dempsey, who's the communications manager with Third Age, based in Summerhill. Good morning to you, Anne, and thank you for joining us. Is that a familiar story to you? Sadly, yes. Particularly at the moment, Michael, they're very much not the only people that are encountering this difficulty. And it's it's so many faceted. There's the money they have to find. There's the trying to find out if this is what they have to pay. It's, you know, if they feel they have to have a cost incurred in, in finding that out. It's the access. It's it's. It couldn't be made more difficult, it seems to me, if the government had tried, you know. Okay, that's not good. Have you any advice for them? Well, yes, because we got a number of calls, I kind of became a little bit of a a very simple sleuth. So first of all, there's a number that people can phone. I'll give you the number before we finish. And I phoned it and I gave, uh, and I wasn't waiting too long for it to be answered. That's the first point. And I gave my... um, 
property ID to the person that answered, a very pleasant woman, and I gave her my area code as well, and she was able to find me on the system. And then I told her what I was being asked, and I asked her to check was that correct, because... um, uh, there was a, a, a notional figure on the note that I got. So she hovered over my address and she she looked and she said I was in a particular band. And then she went into my local authority because each of the some of the local authorities are the same as last year. And some I'm in Wicklow County Council and they've added on a percentage, Michael. She calculated that for me and she said the amount she will have to pay is. And she told me. She gave me the amount and she said, and that's, and I verified that was the amount. And I got her name and details and the, um, and the time I phoned so that when I sent in my check and I sent in an old fashioned check, I didn't go online at all, okay. um, just doing it for my callers, it has been accepted. Right, okay. Now there's, I think, a lot of people listening saying, give us the number. So the number yeah. is um, 01. Hmm. Seven three eight three six two six. Okay. Oh one seven three eight three six two six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll repeat that now again in a minute. If uh, people want to get a, a pen and paper, yeah. if they didn't have a, a pen to hand, uh, we will repeat that again in a moment, and it'll be available from the radio station. Uh, but that's uh, very very good advice. Thanks for that. Uh, actually, there's a, a report uh, just out uh, that uh, we're going to talk about now, uh, which mm-hmm. says there's an awful lot of people who don't have the internet, uh, particularly people over the age of 80. Uh, and uh, this report uh, from Trinity College and indeed Safeguarding Ireland says that uh, as a result, uh, the conclusion is uh, that they've suffered much greater social isolation, exclusion, loneliness and a reduced quality of life and mental and physical ill health during the lockdowns. Uh, this is something that we've been talking about, uh, I think, uh, since the beginning of all of this, Anne. We have indeed, Michael. I suppose, again, the interesting aspect of this report, and I've read it, and it's an excellent report because it has the voice of older people in it. It was it was published this year. It was The research was done this year rather than last year, so it's one of the more latest, the latest ones. So it's having a, a longer feel for how this has impacted on people as it went on. So, so it, it's a very interesting one to look at. Um, and I, as you said, it said a lot of the things that the other reports have said and used the word like isolation, exclusion, loneliness, boredom. But I suppose for me, it brought a number of things together as well because we've all suffered the last almost two years. But again, if we look at how older people's lives differ from others, they're the same and yet different. And they're different because a lot of older people have retired, their lives are more local, they're smaller. A lot of older people are not only dependent on family physically for some of their care, but there's a huge emotional bond that older people are mothers and grandmothers and, you know, they get an awful lot of their love and connection and social engagement from family. And uh, as we know, an awful lot of people had to, you know, felt they couldn't access this, they couldn't see people, all this talk through the window. remember telling you ages ago, Michael, walking when I was allowed to walk out last year and seeing a young couple holding a tiny baby up to the window to their grandmother, to her grandmother, and they were outside. It was kind of terribly poignant to see it, you know. No, absolutely terrible. Yeah. Uh, Because, I mean, that's uh, what life is about, isn't it? And 60% of older people are limiting if they're not stopping uh, their activities outdoors. They're staying at home, a lot of people. 
They are. And then as well as that, um, a lot of family stuff, a lot of the local activity like clubs and, you know, book clubs and bridge and whatever people do, uh, active retirement, you know, women's clubs, men's sheds, so important for men. Um, But they all closed. So not only could you not see your family, all your local, you know, interaction and engagement went as well. Mm. And as you said, the internet also. And like, well, we do know a lot of older people used the uh, time of the last few years to get themselves savvy with the internet. And that was brilliant, you know, and that is a plus. But um, like, I suppose... That's the experience. And then this report also, as some of them have done, Michael, they pull back into, so what's that saying and what do we need to do? And what it was saying was that in terms of policy, I mean, the government were between a rock and a hard place, but they made very kind of unilateral decisions about older people. And there was a lack of, a lack of older people's voices in any of those decision making. And we feel that, in, you know, if we look into the future, there should be much more partnership and representation and having older people involved in the decision making about them, which was missing in this one. Mm. You know? yeah, yeah. But with good yeah. reason as well, uh, because it also says that 56% of uh, the people who were in hospital were over the age of 65 yeah. and 87% yeah. of all of the deaths since all of this began yeah. uh, have been in people uh, in that age group over 65 as I say. It, it's true that yeah. they mm. had and they still have a very difficult job, there's no doubt about it. But I suppose what we find on Senior Line, Michael, that a lot of older people made their own safe you know, unilateral decisions about the value of their routine, the value of connection as best they could, you know, to be busy, to take exercise, you know. And if the government, as well as just saying what you can't do, as well as began to acknowledge that older people like are people too and what they need in terms of, of their own full personal development selves and if the sum of this was acknowledged and offered and discussed and promoted do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. alright That would have been something yeah. Well listen, um, we better uh, give okay. people the phone numbers because we've uh, a few, two phone numbers uh, and hopefully people are back okay. with a, a pen and paper You mentioned Senior Line uh, Tell us very briefly what Senior Line is and give us the number if you would, please. The Senior Line is a national listening and helping service for older people. We open every day of the year from 10 until 10 and it's an 1800 number. Free phone, 1800 80 91. And then the new number I've given you for the property tax mm-hmm. helpline is 01-738-3626. Okay, that's the... Uh, number for revenue, Dublin number 738-3626 uh, and uh, people I'm sure can get it off the senior line or from ourselves here if uh, they didn't have a, a pen to hand and the senior line number, once again if people want to talk to you or any of uh, the volunteers, one 800 80 from 10 to 10 every day 1800 Thanks indeed Anne for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you Mike. Anne Dempsey is uh, the communications manager with Third Age based in Summerhill which runs Senior Line. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. I must be clear that if Glasgow fails then the whole thing fails. The Paris Agreement will have crumpled at the first reckoning the world's only mechanism, viable mechanism for dealing with climate change will be holed beneath the waterline. 
That's Boris Johnson speaking ahead of uh, the COP26 uh, conference, uh, which will bring leaders from around the world together over the course of uh, the next two weeks to find ways of implementing what was agreed in Paris and uh, that uh, the emissions will drop to 1.5% or lower. Let's speak uh, to Jane Mellett, who is uh, the Laudato Sea and Church Officer with Trocra. Good morning to you, Jane, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It's an interesting title that you have, uh, but I think many of our listeners might understand uh, the connection between that and Pope Francis. Indeed, Pope Francis has uh, a lot of interest in climate, uh, sending a message to the world leaders last week uh, through the BBC ahead of uh, their meeting in Glasgow, but it goes back much further than that and uh, feeds into your title for that matter. Yeah, good morning for, for having me on this morning. Um, yeah, my, my job uh, title is a data officer, which many of your listeners might be wondering what on earth is that, but it's um, it's a letter that Pope Francis has written to every single person living on the planet about the environmental crisis and how we might care more deeply for our common home. So Laudato Si is a, it's a Latin phrase, which means praise be, and uh, that's the title of, of his extensive letter on the environment, which was published in 2015. Okay, and Trocra is saying that uh, in Ireland we could be doing an awful lot more. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm here in Glasgow COP26 and the main issue on the agenda here is to strive for keeping global temperatures to 1.5 degrees. And we know that um, with all of the the climate commitments that have been made globally, uh, we are falling way short of that. We're on track for 3 degrees Celsius of warming, which would be catastrophic for our planet and for the world's poorest so we are most definitely advocating for greater ambition at this COP and that includes from the Irish government. Okay, the biggest countries in the world, the 20 countries that make up uh, the G20 met uh, of course uh, at the end of last week and they account for 80% of the emissions in the world Uh, so is there really much point in worrying about what we do in this country? Yes, we are, we're a small country and there are far bigger populations in the world ourselves and, um, and big interests. But uh, 195 countries in the world have signed up to the Paris Climate Accord and we each have a share to deal with. So we have a piece of this big jigsaw puzzle that each country must deal with and Ireland has to meet its own targets um, in that no matter how... Uh, smaller emissions might be in comparison to wealthier countries but we also need to be aware that per capita we're the second highest polluters in the EU and that's not a statistic to be proud of. Right, Nobody wants uh, the adverse weather which has become far too common in, in recent years and impacted on so many people's lives already. How bad could it get? Well, we've had a summer of climate disasters globally, um, which are you know are unprecedented and have shocked even the the scientific community. And um, while poor countries are on the front lines of this crisis and it's affecting them in terms of their food security, access to to food, water, nutrition, um, we also saw it played out across Europe. The, the floods that hit Germany, Belgium, Holland caused 10 billion euros worth of damage, and there was loss of life also. Uh, wildfires rage across the United States and Canada. So we're not immune. We're living through climate change right now. It's happening. It's a reality. It's here in front of us. And the recent UN report said it is going to get worse. So we really can't um, afford to do nothing. There is a cost to doing nothing. 
which uh, far outweighs the cost of action. All right, uh, and that uh, could be catastrophic, as you say, indeed. That is uh, what is expected if we don't do something, which is why everybody is so well-intentioned and uh, everybody wants to do something and everybody wants to save the the, the planet. Uh, Words and actions uh, can be very different, can't they? Because uh, these are big decisions and they're not easy decisions to implement. Sure, and, and it involves, you know, 195 countries reaching consensus, and that's what's happening in Glasgow here in the next few weeks. Um, so these negotiations are extremely complex, um, uh, but that is the challenge set before us uh, to put the Paris Agreement into action, to strive to keep global temperatures below uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius. And, you know, we have to steer on to a different path. And this is this is what we're faced with right now. And Russia and China not uh, attending. uh, Is uh, that uh, similar to falling at the first fence? Yeah, it's a concern. It's unfortunate. You know, China are leading in certain areas of this um, and there's a lot to learn by by them being here um, as well as their challenge. You know, they are one of the the planet's uh, highest emitters in terms of emissions. So, um, you know, it is it is unfortunate, um, but the, the negotiations continue and their delegations are, uh, will be present and we just have to hope for the best there. All right. Uh, well, it's going to be a very busy couple of weeks. Uh, as we know, uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding uh, all of uh, the plans uh, that uh, are intended to bring down our emissions in uh, this country. And uh, I'm not sure that it's uh, much different anywhere. Is there a, a model around the world uh, that can be looked at as uh, being uh, ideal in terms of reducing emissions? Yeah, I suppose, you know, certain countries are are leading the way, certainly in uh, Scandinavian countries and some of the smaller nations, in fact, which are aiming for carbon neutrality. Uh, Ironically, they're the the smaller islands who are on the front lines of the crisis have have adapted and are are leading uh, the way in terms of their their energy moving fully to renewables and so on. Um, So we've a lot to learn from other countries um, in terms of sourcing energy, for example, and Ireland is really well placed uh, to access um, especially wind and, and other sources of renewables. So, you know, this this is going to involve a, a global collaboration and certainly we can look towards those who are who are well down this road for um for examples of that. But it, it is going to require all sectors to, to cut to cut emissions. Um business as usual can continue but it must be a just transition for, for workers, for jobs, for livelihoods. Um, so Troco will be very much advocating for that just transition also. OK, well, look, nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining us uh, from Glasgow. Jane Mellett, Laudato C and Church Officer with uh, Trocra. There now, uh, thanks uh, to whoever it was uh, who asked uh, about all of these world leaders and others getting to Glasgow. Are they going by bike or walking? Uh, no, it's by plane, train and cars. And uh, they'll be doing a lot of, of talking about reducing emissions, uh, but uh, they'll be using a lot of carbon on their travels. Our listener says it's hypocrisy. And uh, Somebody else says, David Bellamy said, the Irish bogs were the best in the world and shouldn't be destroyed. And that's where we leave you for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.